This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. This is Dollars and Change. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And you're listening to Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. Uh, Sandy, we've had a great show so far. I, I think we have. I think we Don't always, mind if we do. <laughs> don't mind if we do. Um, and we will continue to have a great show. And we are actually joined here with Daniel Korshin, who is the Associate Professor of Marketing at Drexel. And we're going to be talking about... A really, really interesting story yes. that has to do with a family-owned business, a, a large family-owned business up in the Northeast. Um, and I'll let him tell us more about the story, but we're talking more about how, you know, protests and, sort of and can Radical affect, consumer activism. Yeah, right? can affect change. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. So and I was, I was saying to Daniel, we're always so delighted to have our, our Philadelphia neighbors of academics here, but Daniel's still in the thick of it because Drexel's on the trimester system. So we are especially grateful for you making time today. So, so Daniel, let's just start off, you know, what? tell us a little more about your background and your expertise and then, you know, how you got into this topic. Sure. I'm a marketing professor, uh, but I get involved in uh, social responsibility uh, issues all the time. It's the main focus of my work is what's the impact of... Uh, companies on society at large. Uh, so uh, Sounds I, like a I, great fit for dollars and change. <laughs> it, it is. It is. And uh, so I've looked primarily at uh, what, I, what I don't do is look at companies um, to see like how much they're doing in the community and how like that improves the aggregate performance. What I look at is individual people. How do individuals, mm. when they find out what the company's doing, how does that change their behavior? How as does it the change? consumer, as an employee, both. Okay, uh, mainly consumers and employees. So it's uh, you know how did how do they interpret that? If I'm an employee, how does that change the way I look at my job? Mm-hmm. If I'm a consumer, how does it change the way that I see my relationship with the company? Okay, and that's a, I mean that is a hot topic at least for us because our students are starting to demand that of employers. So when they're going to these like recruiting fairs, even if it's not a as particularly like socially impactful business. They want to feel that that's an opportunity, that there's volunteerism days, that they align with the company's values. This millennial generation demands that absolutely of employer, there, so there it's really has, important. Since I've been studying this, and this is um, you know in the past decade or more, um, the the big shift that I've seen is that people used to look at their jobs or looking at the products that they're buying, and they would say, okay, what is this? what's the deal that I'm making with? What am I going to do in the job, and how mm-hmm. much am I getting paid? And that mm-hmm. was the basic, and that was the exchange, right? Yep. Uh, and now there's this major shift to who am I working for, who am I buying from? Uh, and so people, are, you know, the values of the company have become such an important part of that exchange that people have with, with the company. Yeah, so it's almost a more integrated self we're seeing. So it's a lot, and we see it with the impact investing as well. The headspace used to be my philanthropy money is in this pocket and I care about where it goes and my investment money is in this pocket and there it goes into guns and oil and I, you know, can sleep well at night because I've had my philanthropy work. Individuals seem to be saying more, what are all of my resources, my investment capital, my time as an employee, my consumer buying power when I'm out per- picking products and sort of voting for the world I want with those dollars. So that's um, right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, it's very consistent with what I find. Well, I was going to say, so I, I think to Sandy's point, there has been, you know, people cared about getting the paycheck and that's still important to all of us, um, myself included. 
But, you know, I also think about seeing my parents and maybe you had to sort of check your own personality at the door to be a util in an economic term. Like, you know, just be. What's a util? Well, it's just in the measure of like one unit. You know, like I am in the I am an employee that does makes this widget or does this function. But um, I'm just thinking like I I just knew growing up the guy didn't want to do that. And so do you have any hypotheses on, you know, maybe why the shift might be happening? I think it's a it's a very broad uh it's a very broad cultural shift uh that's happening and it's it's the way that we look at our at our companies. Um and it's uh you know, I think people are just expecting more from companies that people are um they're bringing their relationships with companies they're looking at it through the lens more of like of themselves of as it's like a form of working with companies has become a form of self-expression in a way Hmm. that makes a lot of sense and so i guess when you think about the evolution of business and this is where i wanted to go with the market basket story Mm -hmm. that you know you wrote a book on um this was a a i guess you'll tell us the story but this is also thinking about that evolution of business and who are we benefiting and where does the money go and how do we reinvest in our company so let's just dive into the story itself what tell us what market basket is and what's the controversy around this yeah yeah. well market basket is a five billion dollar it's a new england powerhouse uh, of a supermarket uh, it's uh, it has a very loyal following. They've been around for uh, it's the hundred year anniversary this year, nineteen seventeen. Oh, wow. um, the uh, the grandparents of the current CEO started this business uh, as a very small store in Lowell, Massachusetts, which was facing very hard times. Yeah, it was an industrial town, right? Very Lowell? industrial, and uh, it was at a time when the, a lot of the textile mills were moving out of town. So a lot mm-hmm. of more people they, they started up, and uh, and they. They immediately realized this is the grandparents that the that they played an important part in the community of providing food to people who were out of work, and so they did a lot of many stores did that at the time was giving credit, um, uh, selling have credit and things and having thing. tabs. Yes, as yeah. a matter of fact, I learned only recently in my own family history that apparently my great grandfather, maybe great great grandfather, I can't remember. Had a grocery store who did that and ended up going out of business because they couldn't make the bills. Yeah, yeah, and this store uh, faced some tough times, uh, especially in the during the depression. So in the in the 30s, they almost went out of business, but they hung on, and um, it was eventually taken over by uh, two of their sons, okay. who are, are the people that uh, it, that's when it really started to grow um, into multiple stores and uh, and and became this powerhouse that it is today. Uh, then they eventually uh, turned it over. Uh, one of them died in the 70s, um, the other not until uh, 2003, but they ended up turning it over to uh, the grandchildren. Uh, and that's, I'm that's happy really... to hear children, not more only boy handoffs. So. <laughs> yes, yes. So that's, and, but that's really when, uh, when a lot of the, the controversy uh, really started to take off um, because there are two sides of the family. Uh, okay, we... so this is the children of each of those sons. The, exactly. And they were... Uh-huh. I won't say diametrically opposed, but there was some friction. Exactly. One of one of the uh, grandsons, or the the grandsons were the ones who are have became like representatives of the family. So we'll, okay. so uh, we'll kind of use their names as uh, as shorthand okay. for the whole side of the family because and, they and were the, they, they were the key conduits. One was named Arthur T. Demoulis, okay. named after the grandfather uh, Athanasios. They named their, okay. their child Arthur. Uh, so Arthur, and I T- think that's the Greek tradition, right? Ar- yes, Arthur T. Demoulis. The other cousin, also along with Greek tradition, was Arthur S. Demoulis. <laughs> oh so no! <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. It's very. You can imagine writing a book on, on this. Um, with the we'll two call cousins. them T and S. For, so Arthur for... T. and Arthur S. Okay, interesting. So, um, 
what you know we're we're sort of seeing the the evolution of this of this company when did it hit headlines what happened right well i was first drawn in in 2013 arthur t okay uh, who was the the CEO and uh, had been in the middle of a of a very successful set of of years about uh, seven or eight years already a very successful a growth multi billion dollar company yeah 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 it was already multi billion dollar but he he continued that that tradition and, uh, and uh, by some measures it even accelerated it a little bit uh, but the company was doing very well uh, and Arthur T was the the CEO. He uh, his job was uh, was being threatened by his cousin who was uh, had started to uh, gain control of the board of directors. Arthur S. And what Ar- was Arthur S.'s role? Arthur S. was uh, a board member. Okay. And he's representing the other side of the family. He takes a very shareholder primacy kind of approach. Okay. Uh, that the shareholders uh, are they elect the board and the board should act. Purely in their interest, and not really worry about anything else. Unless and this is still a private profits. family-owned company. Private family-owned company, but they have their their family group of shareholders. Got it. So we've got Arthur S. He's all about the bottom line. That's right. And uh, and he decided he was going to wanted to sell the company, and his side of the family wanted to sell the company, and um, was pushing in that direction. Arthur T. To, resisted to like a, uh, another grocery brand to or a competitor. Going public. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we don't know all the details, but uh, but from everything that I've been able to gather, it was probably to the uh, to the company that owned their major competitor in okay. the, in the area. Uh, Arthur T, who was the CEO, uh, was resisting this move, even though he was a major shareholder as well, but didn't sure. have quite yeah. as much um, uh, ownership as uh, as Arthur S. What were his values? And, uh, How would you um, say if if Arthur S was shareholder primacy? Bottom line first, it's all about the returns. What would yeah, characterize yeah. Ar- well, this, Arthur T? This is what I discovered <laughs> as I started to hear this because the first time that his job was uh, under threat was in 2013. Uh, and when they were about to have that meeting, it was on the agenda, potential dismissal of the CEO. Of the board uh, meeting. Of the board meeting. At which he was present because sometimes CEOs yes, have was, different – Yes, yes, yes. So yeah, he was – did he have a board he, seat? He was, he was present. He okay. didn't have a board seat at that time. Okay. Uh, he had earlier in, in his career, but uh, but he was he was on the chopping block basically, and um, that day uh, a couple of thousand people lined up the driveway of the of the hotel where they were going to have that meeting. Um, picket signs. Uh, there was one guy that came in with a with a truck, you know, honking the horn, and and it was it was like a big demonstration where it, it was tough to get to the hotel where they're going to have it. And that's when it first hit the news, and and that's when it first gained my attention. And I was saying. Like a lot of other people, what in the world is going on? Who is this guy that they want to protect so much? Yeah. You know, normally when the CEO well, who's, gets fired, CEO's who's, who's a protesting? Big wig. Who's yeah. out these, there? These were uh, at this time. It was all uh, employees. Okay, almost all employees at this point. Uh, so, so just to recap, mm-hmm. we've got a board meeting where dismissing the CEO is on the agenda. And the agenda must have been leaked. It like, must this have been. is public information, right? Or somehow right. became public information. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. people are outside of where this board meeting will take place. These are employees protesting. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, lining this this long driveway to the to the place and um and eventually they put enough pressure on the board that they had to table that uh for a while and uh, and it just and it kind of sat there, you know, nobody was really sure. A lot of uncertainty for a full year. But at this point, that's when I, when my interest was peaked on this, and and I started to talk about it in my classes. You know, here's a, a CEO that people are saying we need to have this guy. We love him. He's good to us as employees, and we can't let him go. Flash forward to about 
uh, a little less than a year, uh, the, the late spring of 2014, mm -hmm. uh, the, the next year, uh, he does finally get fired. Uh, the, uh, the board, which was a split board uh, five to two because Arthur T's side of the family still had some of the, the shares mm -hmm. and they had some represented. But this split board uh, finally fires him. Uh, and that's when this thing completely opened up. Uh, and and uh, that's when I said I, I have to I have to study this more. Okay. Uh, I went. I was in uh, in New England visiting with my mother-in-law. Okay, <laughs> and she was watching the news. She said, "You know, there's some sort of a rally going on. Uh, aren't you doing something on that?" market basket thing? I said, yes, I am. And I'm on vacation. Why don't I just pop by and see what <laughs> yeah, I have, you know, just, just see what I see. And I got there. I was absolutely blown away. It was in one of these strip malls, uh, 10,000 people. As so many of their grocery stores are. Yeah, it sort that's of has right. That, like, that's exactly right. You know, 90s, 70s, like, you know, grocery store anchoring a strip yeah. mall kind of feel. Yeah. So imagine the parking lot of one of those strip malls completely empty of cars, but just packed with 10,000 people. Whew. Uh, there was, uh, they had at this point, this wasn't their first rally that they had. It was just the first one I was able to see. So they had a uh, sound system, uh, in there. They're playing songs. Uh, they were like literally, like they the, the New England people are also oh, like a would... particularly hearty bunch. Yeah. To mess uh, with. No, you can say yeah, that because yeah. you're married to one. I am. <laughs> and this and was, he is hearty. This was like nearly, <laughs> I don't mess with them. <laughs> it was nearly a, a party atmosphere in this thing. Like there were literally beach balls going around, like as if it was a, a, a concert. Wow. And I, I kind of got caught up in the fun of it. Uh, and then I uh, I started to talk to people in the crowd, and that was really when I I was saying I said to myself that this, there's something really important going on here. I mean, it, it might it looks like a party at first blush, but this is really something that these people are are, are going through something that's much more profound. Uh, what I was hearing and was so these people haven't lost their jobs. They hadn't yet. Okay. Uh, some Didn't, of them. Some of them alert. at this. Some of them had uh, had <laughs> had walked so off not, the job. So they're not. They're not protesting. Like you know, we were terminated or our salaries were sliced. They're just saying like we disagree with the board. Right. Well, is the moment that he was fired, uh, uh, some of the uh, the upper level people walked off the job. So okay. these are like upper level executives. Uh, a few weeks later, uh, there was another walkout of the warehouse people, everybody who was like, uh, sending the supplies to the stores. So they were choking the uh, many of the supplies, especially the perishables and things in the stores, and emptying that out. Uh, then several, uh, then, then a little bit later, um, the uh, customers asked the people, you know, can we get involved too? Uh, we really care about this as well. And that's when uh, they started a consumer boycott. Uh, and uh, and almost overnight, ninety five percent of their sales just disappeared, wow. just just like that. So, what was the message going out? I'm trying to think what it would take because groceries are an important part of you know family life, especially if this is a dominant chain. That means these people had to travel further to get their groceries, right? Or they were going to other stores. It just it's such a pain in the butt to go to a new grocery store. You don't know where things are, and so this is a, a sacrifice people are making. That's right. What made them do that? What were the stories that got out that said, "Hey, it's going to be worth my time for ninety five percent of their consumers that's to change exactly, their behavior." That's exactly what shocked me when I was walking in this crowd and in the rallies. Is that I would speak to people, and I was expecting them to say, "You know, we we really like Arthur T. He's he's a great person. He's he's nice to us." Right. Um, and I did hear a lot of that. Uh, but the other thing that I heard was that this store, the institution itself, was so important to the communities that it was in. Uh, and that that's really what what really drew me in was was people felt that if 
he was fired and it got sold to a competitor. This other competitor was a much more traditional uh, kind of supermarket and they would lose that service to the community that this store was um, was providing. Some of this, this store is known for having low prices. It's uh, no, so it serves, uh, a, it tends to, it's skewed, I, I, you would say, towards lower income people, people who don't have t- a ton of choices. And when a market basket moves into the community, it provides a, a really um, important outlet for those people so they can put food on the table. Uh, it also provides uh, great service for people. They have more people in the, in the store, like working in the store, um, than anyone that I've ever visited. And, and I, this is like an exercise that I go through that I drive my, my family crazy. I always, anytime I go into a supermarket, I count how many employees are in there. Uh, but they, so it's from a job creation perspective or a customer service perspective? They, it's both. Okay. It's both. That's, that's the thing that has impressed me with this company is that they tie these, all of these things together. So they're creating uh, jobs, uh, particularly for young people who might have trouble you know, getting going, and they get this training uh, early on in, in their lives. Uh, and it also gives great service to customers, and it's is creating these bonds with customers where they, uh, they, you know, they. It's it's one of those stores that um, that has that kind of cultish following mm-hmm. that people uh, get excited, thinking, okay, I'm going to Market Basket, I'm going. Which is funny for like a a modestly priced grocery store, right? Like it doesn't have the brand cachet of some of these. You, you know, would never designer. think it. And and the the thing is, even if you walk into one, you're not going to be blown away by how different this store is. It's actually quite traditional. Uh, the, the thing that people get excited about is that over, it's the overtime um, experience that, that they get. That they, you know, my mother-in-law shops there all the time, and she, she goes there pretty much pretty religiously every Wednesday. Uh, she'll go pretty much the same time, and she'll see all the same people, and they see her. She doesn't know everybody by name. Um, she's more on the shy side. Some other people who are more outgoing might, you know, start conversations and things. But um, so they, it's a very, it becomes a very personal experience, and it's something that the that the company is always trying to uh, foster and and push more is making sure so they don't have automated checkouts. A lot of the other stories, they say, let's try to like focus just on the efficiency and mm-hmm. push that really, you know, really hard. We'll have automated checkouts so that we can hire one less person. Um, they say, no, we want to have. We, they actually have two people at every checkout, so there's always somebody. Bagger. There's yeah. always somebody bagging. So, so take us, you know, from this. I guess what's starting to like bubble here. You've got right. all these folks who are make, starting to make noise. Um, what happens? What is catalyzed? In uh, in it, during the protest, yeah, saying, yeah. So you know, obviously, there's there's a crescendo to the story that I'll let you tell, right? Which yeah, is yeah. Well, they, I mean, there's there's the the boycott. This thing just kept growing and growing. So even after the the consumers um, started to boycott, uh, there was you know both both of the sides on on this were really pretty strongly entrenched. Um, there were two new CEOs that replaced Arthur T. Um, they were pretty much alone in this building in their corporate headquarters. Um, all the executives had left. Uh, m- almost all the uh, the corporate people, so the buyers, the uh, the accounts payable, um, all, all of these, it's completely empty. Uh, they all went across the street and started protesting. And so each side is is digging in. Um, at it started, you know, towards the towards the end of this protest, it lasted six weeks in the summer of two thousand fourteen. Uh, towards the end, it really looked like it was it was it was an all or nothing kind of thing. Either they were going to sell their shares, uh, the the other side would sell their shares back to Arthur T, and then that his side of the family would own the whole company, or the whole place was just going to fold up, uh, and they were going to shutter the windows, and that would be that. Uh, 
Um, so um, it, w- it was a very scary time for a lot of people. And it's, it's 25,000 employees, 2 million customers, uh, very, some very scary moments. And then, uh, and then late one evening, the news broke. I was in Philadelphia, so I didn't get a chance to, wow. uh, to, to head up. Uh, but uh, it was it was a party like so kind what of like was the, the news. It was, the news was uh, Arthur T uh, managed to uh, to purchase the other side of the of the company, and now their family owns the uh, owns the full hundred percent of the shares. We're speaking with Daniel Corshin, who is an associate professor of marketing at Drexel. You're listening to Dollars and Change, and we are discussing the market basket case that that you wrote, and and just sort of the the dramatic story about this family owned business up in the New England area. Um, I'd love if you are from this area and you shop at Market Basket or to to mm-hmm. give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two. You're Daniel's mother in law. Seven eight six six. Give us a call. And so you've got. We talk so much on this show around businesses and where they make investments to for their employees in for social impact related or environmental re- impact related um, efforts and like what has the business case. As you mentioned, this was a multi billion dollar organization. Um, if I'm if I'm I'm a board member, I'm thinking about my fiduciary duty. What was cause for firing Arthur T? Yeah. In in this case, you know the board has a lot of legal leeway in what in what they can do. So they legally they had a right to do it. Uh, the question is, was it the right thing for the business um, or not? Um, you know, I I think that they were, you know, even though they they are able to do it um, legally, it's actually not part of the of their fiduciary responsibility. I mean, they're even in Massachusetts. If you look at the at the code that's supposed to guide their decisions. Um, they, it says they're not, they're, their responsibility is not to the interests of the shareholders alone. It's actually to the corporation and the shareholders are considered part of that corporation. Um, so that's a, that's a big lesson for boards, um, that we don't pay enough attention to. Um, the, uh, the board's responsibility is to look at that whole institution. So here we had so some activists. Share- might be like the stability of the corporation. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and here we had, um, a group of, of, Activist shareholders, I think it would be fair to call them, uh, that were trying to turn the company one way. And then you have the rest of the corporation, all the other stakeholders, um, and who are saying, no, we, we want to keep Market Basket the way it is. It helps too many people. Um, we, we, can't, we can't turn this into something that's going to harm that, that many people. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that the, those members of the board really dropped the ball on, in, the, in this case. Um, what the, do you, go ahead, no, I was going to say, what do you think are some of the major lessons? Like when you when you wrote your case and, and, you know, as you tell the story, what do you think are some of the major business lessons that our students, your students, our listeners would really you'd want them to take away yeah, from this? Yeah. There there are two big areas that I that I like to bring into classes. And also when executives ask me because they, they ask all the time, like, what can, what can I learn from this? Is this a one off or is this something? Um, one is that people are actually much more pro-business than, than we think. Um, we often think that people, you know, there's, there seem, there's a, a, the idea that there's a, an anti-business sentiment. But this boycott, even though they were willing to take down the company, it was a pro-business boycott. So people were saying, like, we're willing to see this thing. We'd rather see it go completely than for someone to change what, what we've got here and how it helps people. Um, so it's very pro-business. The other one is, the, um, is that a lot of the impact of a company 
comes through relationships between individual employees and individual customers. Um, this protest it would not have been successful had it not been for these very strong, very personal relationships that that they have. Um, and it's uh, so, and it was that it's that bond that people have that ends up helping those customers. Um, it provides those customers with a place to shop with more dignity. Uh, and uh, and it's good for the employees too. They feel better about their work. They feel like they're helping someone. And I mean, there's a lot of research, um, a lot of it coming out of Wharton um, that um, that that points to this idea that when people feel that they're helping others, uh, that it's more motivating. Um, that it um, it just it provides rewards for the for the job uh, much beyond what you can get even from the paycheck. Um, so those I, I you know so I like to recommend to executives to really to concentrate on those relationships on the individual relationships between employees and customers because there's so much value that can be there that that many companies are ignoring. Well, and I think what's interesting about. Oh, oh. <laughs> can, oh. you, can you guys still hear me? <laughs> oh, uh, my headphones are being a little goofy. I think what's interesting about this is that I expected in in reading this case and in talking to you to hear about some like revolutionary, um, you know, corporate social responsibility that they were doing these like above and beyond things that they had giant food pantries for the communities or you know that there was something that made them so invaluable to these communities. But really, it was just that they. They, they went the extra mile with the little things, with the relationships. Which added know, up. W- which did add up, you know. So I think it's, it is – that's, to me, a very surprising aspect of this is that it wasn't a gigantic, sweeping, deep CSR move that earned them this customer loyalty. It was over time, very consistent, very trustworthy, you know, prices that worked, people that worked – you know, commitment to their employees because there is no real like big shot across the bow thing that I'm seeing here. It's just they have a solid reputation. They must treat their employees well. They must handle hiring and firing well. Like all that stuff contributed to their you know reputation. I think you're hitting it right on. Um, that's a lot of what this company is about. Is that thing? It's attention to details. Uh, not so much trying to hit a home run with any individual program. Um, and the pro, you know, programs uh, and a lot of my work are, are very important. Um, you, you had your last guest was talking about some of the, the major programs that are important, having an impact on a lot of people. And um, and I, I would not steer companies away from those things. Uh, but I but we definitely cannot lose sight of those little things, the details in those relationships, because it's, that's how the, a company can have the a, a biggest, a very large, lasting impact on stakeholders. And Daniel, how does that affect? So we, like you said, we had J.P. Morgan Chase on right before you, and you know they're a a national global, you know, bank, how do you, you know, manage those relationships, the customer relationships when you're spread so far and wide versus a more regional, you know, play like Market Basket? Are there differences or what's your research showing? I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to the training of the of those employees and making, you know, they have to have an awareness of how they're affecting people's lives and where they fit in with the rest of the company and how, the you know, all of, over the company. At Market Basket, they've been very successful at doing this. And if you ask any employee, they say, you know, we there's a purpose for us being here. And then I am a li- an important link in that. And baggers at the checkout counter will say, it, you know, if I don't bag the the groceries properly, okay, uh, then then everything just is is um, is going to be ruined. You know, like the 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 customer won't be as happy. Uh, and then what's the use of the rest of it? So they feel that they have a very important uh, part in that. Um, and it's something that we don't often see in mm-hmm. um, in other companies is that they don't always have that kind of perspective on on how they're contributing, what their individual contribution is. 
Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And I am thinking about, you know, you, you talked about the demographic of individuals who the store sort of caters to. You know, food's a very important resource. Like you're thinking about a family who, you know, if you bag those eggs wrong and they fall, like that's breakfast. Like there aren't backup breakfasts in the house for like a lot of families. Well, not not only that, but, you know, you sort of think going back to the value, what the value of the company is, you might think that it is the food. Like that's why I exist. And that's true. But yet. Like really over time, other values sprouted up, (laughs) no pun intended, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to think through why people value going to Mm -hmm. that grocery store, because you may, you know, you may decide to drive a little bit further because it is cheaper down the road. Now, Market Basket did, you know, have a different price point. But if if you and I were making Mm -hmm. a decision, Sandy, like we may decide to go somewhere else because it's cheaper just a little bit down the road. But, you know, we may choose to go to Market Basket because we like that hometown feel and whatever else we're having. Yeah. Well, and and to hear about the thoughtfulness, you know, I'm thinking about the market baskets I've seen in in the Boston area and in South Boston, you know, it's like, are they, um, are they located near public transit? You know, as they think about, and it strikes me that a company that's giving this level of thoughtfulness to their, the value of their baggers is also going to go a long way to think about, you know, are we, in a convenient spot for the, the people who are traveling home from work? Are we at a convenient stop for the school pickups? Are we, you know, making this experience work for our people? But it's, I just think it's so awesome that there's no gigantic flagship thing that's making this work. It's just, it's, a, you know, little things long remembered, sort of yeah, all that yeah. quality. And they're trying to figure it out too. You know, I mean, they're not a perfect company, like no company is. Um, it can be a tough place to work because they're very demanding uh, of people and they're very demanding. I mean, like the baggers are under a lot of pressure to do it, you know, in a certain way. Uh, so there's a, so it's not a necessarily an easy place to work either, but they but they're able to keep uh, to keep at it and stay motivated because they a, a part a large part of it for a lot of uh, the employees there is they they re- they see the people that they're serving. And uh, and they they feel like they're helping those people, um, and they're making those connections that a lot of people, a lot of employees just they, they don't make. They don't have the perspective. Well, yeah. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, we've been speaking with Daniel Corshin, who is an associate professor of marketing at Drexel, talking about the market ba- basket case that he wrote and how you know these protests really did affect change within the company. Um, it it sounds like Market Basket could be a change the world company too. So maybe our next guest, when we speak with Alan Murray, who's the president of Fortune and chief content officer at Time Inc. Maybe he should have them on their on their radar to, to write about too. So we're going to take a short break, but stick with us. We're going to be speaking with Alan Murray. This is Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 